the reading for the day from the Old Testament is for Esther 3, 1 through 6, 8 through 11, and chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day and he would not listen to them, he, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So, as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand, and he gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. This is the word of the Lord. Would you please join me as we pray? God, you have been making yourself known throughout our gathering, our service, and we expect no less as we now uh, open up the revelation of yourself through your word. You say, as Jesus Christ is lifted up, you draw all manner of people, all sorts of people to him. And we pray you would do that, nothing short of that in our midst. And we thank you in advance, our dear Father. In Christ's name, amen. A defining moment might be described as a moment where an event or decision 
reveals the core character of a group of people or a person or maybe an event that shapes society. And they can take lots of forms. Maybe it's a defining event with respect to technology and progress, the development of the x-ray or of the Apple phone, whatever you prefer. Or it might be a cultural defining moment when the Beatles appear on Ed Sullivan or Michael Jackson moonwalks across the stage at the Motown 25th. Or maybe it's athletes that have broken the color barrier. Jackie Robinson, Mashi Murakami, Lou Castro. Or it may be a political defining moment. The First Continental Congress, the day where women gain the right to vote, the election of the first African-American president. All defining moments, at least in this culture. And it's also true these defining moments can be make or break moments. There's a story that's told about the great alto saxophone player Charlie Parker, uh, one of the inventors of bebop, where he was 16 years old, he took the stage to play with some pretty big, you know, some heavyweights, and he really wasn't up for the task. And in the middle of his solo, he froze up and Philly Joe Jones took a cymbal and he threw it at him. And that caused Charlie Parker to go home and practice like he'd never did before. And the rest of the story is clear, a defining moment for him. But they might be more serious moments, right? 9-11, a defining moment. The March on Selma, a defining moment. Moments of life or death, perhaps. And this is true of the history of God's people. When you read the story of God's people, you will see defining moments. Maybe it's Israel's liberation from bondage in Egypt. It's King David's defeat of Goliath. The defining, defining moment is Jesus Christ's crucifixion and resurrection in the Christian faith. But the story of Esther certainly qualifies as one of those moments. Here you have a young Jewish girl raised by her older cousin, Mordecai. She's called upon, compelled, not by her choice, to have to join the harem of King Ahasuerus, or his Greek name is Xerxes I, because he's after a new queen. And so Esther is thrust upon the world stage, a very young age, and you can imagine all the struggles she felt, all the complexities that go with that. And we talked about it last week where the book in and of itself is written in a way where it leaves us wrestling with the questions that the main characters would. How did Esther handle that? Did she hate every moment of it? Was she actually flattered by it? We don't know. And the same is true with us. Anybody that would seek to be what we're calling a faithful ambassador for God, a representative of God in the world, you too have defining moments, anybody who takes on that role. And what I want to talk about in the time we have is what characterizes those make or break moments and what support do we get in them, okay? Let's look at those two things. What characterizes those make or break moments and what support does God offer as we go through them? When it comes to these make-or-break moments, I will say there's two things you find in common, identity and risk. Identity that leads to risk. 
Now, some of you may remember, your nieces and nephews or kids remember the movie Mulan, right? And it tells the old legend, Chinese legend, of a Chinese girl who disguises herself as a man so she can go to war instead of her father. But when her identity is revealed, it leads to lots of conflict and even more risk. When the identity of Esther and Mordecai is revealed, it does the same in their lives. We see it with Mordecai. Mordecai refuses to bow before Haman, who had been promoted to second in command right under the king. But we're not really told why. Citizens, Jewish citizens, did bow before leaders as a sign of honor and respect. So we're left wondering, why didn't Mordecai? Was it just out of stubbornness that he didn't do it? Or was it resentment? You remember last week, we we read the account where Mordecai had actually uncovered a plot to assassinate the king. And typically when that happened, you were rewarded big time, but somehow they had forgotten, they had passed over. Was he resentful toward Haman who had been promoted to that position? Maybe he thought he would be. There's lots of conjecture we can have, but the text itself gives us a better clue. In Hebrew narrative, oftentimes the way characters are introduced tells you something about them in the story. Mordecai is introduced as a Jew from the tribe of Benjamin. Haman is a descendant of Agag, the king of the Amalekites. Now, if we did a little research, we could go back and find out that the tribe of Benjamin produced the first king of Israel, King Saul. And we could also go back and find out that the Amalekites were the first nation that ever attacked Israel. And we continue to raid them and show them great hostility. So God said, I want you to attack them without mercy. I want you to annihilate them. Now, of course, that brings up questions about holy war, doesn't it? I mean, how can a just God do this? And uh, I, I want to take a stab at that quickly, but also let you know when we studied the book of Judges, I wrote a blog on holy war. And so you can go to our website and read a little bit more than I'll say here. But as you've heard me say before, at this time in God's unfolding plan and his purposes, what we'll call redemptive history, at this time Israel has a unique role as the model and messenger of God. Their community was to be a model of a community of shalom, of peace, of justice, and righteousness. And they were to be a light to the nations of the steadfast love of the Lord. Let the nations know who God was. And this came back way back to Abraham, where God said to Abraham, you, I'm going to bless you, and you're going to bless all the nations. And there are times in Israel's history where you see that, where they're bringing blessing to the nations, and the nations are actually blessing them back, the building of Solomon's temple, where you have Gentile nations giving them, uh, giving them resources to build that temple. But there were also times where God would use Israel as an agent, an instrument of his judgment, particularly when nations were hostile against his people, as you have the case with the Amalekites. But in that moment, there were these boundaries around it. It was a result of direct verbal command from God. It was finite and had a definite end. Why do I say that? Because there is no justification for the Christian church or Christians ever to wage a holy war. 
The Bible understands it was a unique period in redemptive history. It was a limited period in redemptive history. And there's really a spiritual war theme that goes behind it. But nowhere do you find justification for Christians to do that sort of thing. The Crusades were a mistake. Things like that are. But back to our story. It gives a hint of why Mordecai probably didn't bow before Haman. Could it be that he sensed that same hostility, that same anti-Semitism, that desire to eradicate the Jewish people that was present in the Amalekites? And I think we have good reason to see that because it's actually present in Haman's own words, in his actions. What do we find? Haman goes and he manipulates and bribes the king. He doesn't mention the people group he wants to wipe out, but he just says, will you let me do this? He then incites the citizens of the capital of Susa against the Jewish community. Now, not all of them did. In the text, it actually says the city was thrown into confusion, likely because people had close relationships with the Jewish community. But then, of course, we see the outcome of what he does, an edict to commit genocide. We read, and when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai. He wasn't satisfied with just destroying Mordecai. And so the text would lead us to believe that Mordecai resisted bowing because he sensed that same hostility. But there's even another thing we could add. If you go back to the story of King Saul, you find that he disobeyed the Lord. He didn't do the Lord's commandment, and it wasn't out of mercy. It was out of his own selfish desire to plunder what the Amalekites have. It might have been that Mordecai in his mind thought, I cannot compromise myself like Saul did, like the forebearer of my people did. But again, we're not told. Either way, Mordecai's bringing out his true identity results in great risk to his life. There's a relationship between being that true identity that God gave and the risk you bear. But we also see it in Esther. Now, when Esther hears about Mordecai and his grief, sackcloth and ashes, she doesn't really know why. For five years, she has been away in the palace, isolated in the palace, away from her community and her faith, living in luxury, living around uh, influences of the pagan society and pagan religion. So she hears nothing about this. And when she learns, Mordecai says, you've got to go to the king. And Esther hesitates to do that. She's fearful for her own life because she could only go to the king if you had been invited. She hadn't been, and she hadn't seen him for 30 days, which probably points to the fact that their relationship had cooled off and the king had moved on to other people in the harem. She hesitates. But there's also something else we find. In the book of Esther, only Esther is referred to by two names. We're given her Persian name, Esther, and we're giving her Jewish name, Hadassah. And it's a window into the struggle of the two identities that must have been going on in Esther's life. She's raised with the faith of the Lord, faith of Yahweh. She gets transferred into this new kingdom. Could it be that she was assimilated a little too much into it? Could it be that she began to enjoy the life in the palace that was isolated and comfortable? But Mordecai challenges her, and he says, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. And after considering that, Esther says, Then I will go to the king, though though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. She essentially says, I'm likely going to die doing this. So Esther calls to unveil her identity 
to her own risk. Now, let me just take this and apply it to us, okay? This idea of risk and identity. Now, the Bible tells us a couple things about our identity, who we are. Whether you are here and you embrace the Christian faith or whether you don't, the Bible would say these things are true of everybody. One, that everybody is made after the likeness and image of God. So no matter what they believe or how they behave, they're worthy of dignity and respect. Everybody made in the image of God. Number two, the Bible would say, at the core of our identity is not actually emotional or physical, it's spiritual. At the core of our identity is a spiritual identity. And you see this even within Israel. As much as ethnic Israel at that time was mixed with this idea of God's chosen people, God would say, and Jesus said this, that the children of Abraham, the true children of Abraham of Israel, were those that had faith, those that trusted in the grace of God and related to him that way. Spiritual identity. But thirdly, the Bible would say that we don't realize our true identity as sons and daughters of God until we are united to the Son of God, the ultimate Son of God, Jesus Christ, the one and only Son of God. This is what the Gospels would teach. Now, sin distorts and pulls us away from that in two ways. Sin does two things to our identity. Sin does this. First of all, it makes us less than we should be. Sin would lead us to say that your identity is basically just a bunch of molecules in DNA, or you are just a higher form of an animal, and, or your desires rule over you. That's who you are. But the other thing sin does is this. It will ta- have us take a sub-identity and make it our primary identity. What I mean is this. A sub-identity maybe can be our race, our ethnicity, our gender, our sexuality, our political affiliation. Sin will take one of those things and make it the identity by which we relate to the world and relate to God. And what the gospel does is when we come to understand God and our creator, it returns us to our true identity. Jesus Christ not only rescues people from the guilt and power of sin, he restores, he gives you the extreme makeover, spiritually. So much so that the Bible would say that those that believe in Christ are new creations, Genesis 1. New creatures in Christ, or the book of Ephesians that would say, you are now, by God's spirit, being remade in true righteousness and holiness. You are made morally beautiful. God is doing this work in everybody that has connected themselves to him through the beloved Son. So, if that is your identity of faith... A few things will happen. One, you will start to feel uncomfortable with comfort. When Esther understands her identity, she calls a fast. And you see what happens to that. Even though she's living in a palace, she starts to identify with those that are outside the palace, with those that are oppressed, those that are struggling. She takes on their cause for her own, and yes, it's her own people, but she's now relating differently. And we would say in this church community, for those that know that gospel, we do the same with the city. It's not enough for us to come into the city and simply use it for its comforts. Because Washington is a cool city, because there's cool amenities, because I can play kickball on the mall, because, you know, I can walk on the... Whatever it would be, I can walk by the Capitol every day. We don't stay in that palace. We relate to the city, as Mike said earlier, that is broken that is hurting, the city that's in needs. We fast, in a sense, for the city. 
but it'll also mean that we take risks. If you are someone that is identified with Jesus Christ, it will be inevitable that you will receive opposition for it. And not because you're acting like a jerk on your own, but simply because the values of the old identity of the culture are going to be pressing against the work that God is doing. And so it gets to real practical questions, like if you are someone that calls yourself a Christian here, are there people in your life, neighbors or coworkers, that have known you for some time but don't know that you're a Christian? That you feel hesitant to be able to say that identity, to take that risk. And the more you and I become confident in our identity as sons and daughters in God, we'll take that risk because our acceptance is no longer in the society. It's in God. So, there's a relationship between identity and risk. Now, I want to end by getting to how God supports us in that endeavor, okay? Four things to close. First of all, it's understanding that God rules our lot. He rules our lot. It says in the text that Haman, once he got the edict, he cast a lot. He rolled the dice to figure out what month would be most favorable to the gods to wipe out the Jewish community. And what he got was 11 months later, actually on the eve of Passover for the Jews. We'll get back to that in a second. But the educated reader in Israel, as they read that idea of lots, immediately their mind would have been thinking about certain things in the Bible. One in particular, when God conquered the nations that were hostile to Israel and brought them into the land, we're told that he then divided the land by lot and gave it to the 12 tribes. So in their mind, when they heard the word lot, they would have been thinking, wait a second, God was the muscle and deliverer for us whereby we got what we had, even though they're living in exile right now that God was the one that had accomplished that goal. Or maybe the proverb that the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Put yourself in Esther's mindset. Think about how she thought about her life at this point. I mean, she probably had dreams to get married, dreams to start a family. She certainly had more dreams than I'm going to be basically a royal prostitute for a king. She must have had great dreams, and it just seemed like one string of bad luck. Mordecai probably felt that way, too. The woman I raise as a daughter, she's got to go stay in this king's palace where he's just going to basically use her as he wants, and on top of that, I'm passed over for this act on behalf of the king. All these decisions that seem totally out of the control and just one string of long bad luck. And yet, as we read the end of the story of Esther, we see that God was working through all of it. He was exercising his decision through all of it. And Mordecai gets this when he says to Esther, listen, you know, you need to help us here, but if you don't help us, help will come from another place. He, he believes it. And the challenge for you and I is, do we believe that God would do that work? I don't know what circumstances in your life right now where you feel like you got a bad roll of the dice. But if you are part of God's people, the story is only in your favor. It can only be in your favor. Divine luck, okay? Providence and God's purposes for his people. First way God supports us. The second way is he uses the threats to cause us to return to him. Now, theologians will notice both in Esther and Mordecai's words, there's echoes of Joel chapter 12. Their words echo that. And Joel was a prophet right after the exile, and probably his prophecy was, you know, something they were familiar with because the words are so closely akin. And in Joel, he basically causes God's people 
to fast and to pray and return to him. And then it says, and who knows, maybe the Lord will be gracious. You find Esther calling for a fast and fast and weeping the sackcloth, and then you have Mordecai going, and who knows, maybe you were raised up for such a time as this. Now, the one thing that's missing from Esther and Mordecai's thing is prayer. Joel calls to prayer. You don't hear that mentioned by Esther. Could it be that she's reflecting the weak state of Israel right now and their relationship to God? Again, we don't know, but it's something that stands out in omission. But what we have here is in, in, in the midst of this daunting circumstance, what does God do? He actually uses it to return his people back to him, and nothing has changed. When you and I are living in the status quo, basically, when things, you and me, we have this way that we want life to go. And we think about it every day, we plan and we try to execute it. Some of it's good stuff, but some of it is basically, Lord, I want this sort of life where things just kind of go down the easy river. And the only thing that gets us out of that is when he rocks the boat. It's just the way it always works with God's people. It's because of sin in us. Sin in us makes us not handle prosperity and comfort well. We abuse it. And so you find over and over God will use threat and trial and suffering to get people back into intimacy with him where they stop acting like their own gods. And he does that with Esther. He does that with Mordecai. It's intimacy. And Hebrews chapter 12 talks about that. It says actually suffering and trials is confirmation of your sonship of your daughtership, that you truly belong to him. Woe to the person who God leaves alone. Woe to the person who has the life they want. Because that life will inevitably be just a life where I build my life in my kingdom. And so persecution leads to intimacy. It did for the Son of God. It does for God's people. Could it be right now that the threat that you were worried about, whether it's financial, whether it's health, whether it's opposition you're getting, you're, maybe you're afraid about the fact that you are a Christian in a basically field and career where that, that's not received. I don't know what it is for you. Whatever that threat is in your life, do you see it as a call to intimacy with God? Because that's how he intends to use it. Thirdly, God provides a mediator. He raises Esther up as an advocate for his people. And there we have a hint of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the go-between between between God and men. One of the reasons it's such a big deal in the Bible that Jesus has divine and human nature is because he can represent the divine and the human. He is actually the one that mediates. He is the one that is able to bridge and advocate for us before God as we stand before him. He does this by his life and death, by his, the forgiveness that he brings so our relationship with God can be justified at peace, reconciled, which means this. Everybody that lays hold of him as a mediator stops mediating for themselves. Now, I want you to imagine yourself standing before God, and I want you to imagine what stands between you and God by your own volition. So if you come before, I think a lot of people, because I hear this said regularly, when people stand before God, what they're going to plan to put between themselves and God, mediating, are their good works and good deeds. So the conversation goes something like this, you know, I haven't been perfect, God, but I want you to look at these. They're standing between you and I. And God basically goes, yeah, (laughs) they're not as good as you think they are. 
I mean, if we don't even know that now, I mean, I, I'm a preacher. I'm a good guy, okay? I'm, I'm a pastor. I'm a good guy. If you, got, if you got a window into my motives every week, you might not want to have me here next week. All right. Let's be honest about our goodness. But the other thing is this. It's not just goodness between us and God. Some other people try to put a connection or a relationship there. So I'll stand before God and go, listen, my life wasn't too good, but I, I, my grandmother, she was really great. So on basis of my grandmother, well, you, you're, you're a little bit closer. God wants you to move off your grandmother, off the friend that you have that, you know, did better than you, after that connection, and he wants you to have Jesus, his son, his son that did everything right, that to be your mediator. And when we have that mediator, we can understand this. This is what John Calvin said. Since no man is worthy to present himself to God and come into his sight, the heavenly Father himself, why? To free us at once from shame and fear which might well have thrown our hearts into despair, has given us his son to be our advocate. God doesn't want you to be ashamed before him. He doesn't want you to be fearful before him. That's why his son came, died the death that you should have died, and lived the life that you should have lived. And we're also told at this one moment, he is interceding at the right hand of God, the place of authority for all that believe in him. He's constantly interceding. He's constantly mediating. He's pleading to God, and God is hearing his prayer because it's his son. He's going, oh, Lord, my son or daughter that lives in homelessness and poverty on the street, who couldn't hope to get a place in the city because the list is so long, I'm pleading for them. I'm pleading for my son and daughter that battles chronic illness every day or depression every day. I'm pleading for them. I'm pleading for the lonely one. He's pleading. He's the mediator. And when you have that mediator, it gives you courage to continue to be a faithful ambassador. But lastly, deliverance waits in the wings. That's what we're told. I mentioned to you uh, the question that probably was running through Israel's mind and Esther and Mordecai at this time because they had been exiled and it was because ultimately of the disobedience in the past. The question must have been, I mean, is God going to show up? Is he really going to deliver us? Are those promises for me? And the reason we know that's the question because that's the same question you and I ask all the time. Even for those that actually believe and embrace this gospel, when we get into a jam or maybe we screwed up in our lives, we thought, well, I contributed to this screw up. Would God be gracious to me? Would he fulfill his promise of deliverance to me? That's the question they had in our minds. And we have a sense of what he says to that. God controls the lot. It's on the eve of Passover. What does Passover represent when God delivered his people from Egypt? when the blood went on the doorpost to say that I will buy you and atone for your sin, he's going to deliver them. We even seen in that hand of providence. And so you and I need to move to this place where we realize that God's faithfulness to us is not dependent on our faithfulness to him. That may sound like heresy to you as I say it. Well, wait a second, Glenn. You're not saying that. What I'm saying is God's faithfulness to you does not depend on you. It depends on his son's faithfulness. It's because he has placed his name upon you. It's because of his name and glory. If God only saved us because of our performance, none of us would have a prayer. 
So the reason why he will show up to Esther and show up to Mordecai and God's people is because he's made that promise, and that's what he does. He delivers. I don't want to give the story too early, but he does. Because he has sent the king that is not isolated in the palace, who could not stay in the palace, the king that became flesh and blood, the king that came and lived among our weaknesses, the king, the king that just didn't risk his life, he voluntarily and intentionally sacrificed his life so that he might have his people for his own. And so, for those that believe and know him, there are no real breaking moments. There are only making moments. Let's pray. Thank you for who you are, God. Thank you for who you promised to be to all that believe in you. In Christ's name, amen.